The Holy Gospel according to John in the third chapter. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. And he came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. And Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. And Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear it, hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated. And let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and our minds this morning be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The New Testament is typically very hard on Pharisees. And that's not because they were bad people. It's because they were devoted to a goal they could never achieve. Being good enough. And there's a Pharisee living inside of most of us. We're pretty good at following the rules, obeying the law, and fulfilling our duties and commitments. Those of us who hang around churches have learned to call ourselves sinners. And we certainly are that. When we get to the prayer of confession at the beginning of worship, how many of you don't have something running through your head from the course of the week? But like the elder brother, our sins are not those of the prodigal son. We haven't generally made a mess of life, squandered our opportunities, or lived completely self-indulgent lives. No, our great sin is staying at home with the Father and not enjoying the grace that the Father gives. We think that if we try hard, we could be good enough to deserve God's love. And no one enjoys love who tries to deserve it. The one Pharisee that the New Testament portrays in a relatively positive light is the one 
from our reading this morning. Nicodemus. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. And that means he was well-educated, ethical, and concerned about the common people, as all Pharisees would have been. He was as good as it gets. And he received tremendous social approval for his station in life, but clearly he was searching for something else. One night he leaves his home and family, or possibly another Pharisee committee meeting, to go and find Jesus. And unlike other Pharisees, he has no interest in debating with Jesus over politics, taxation, sin, or observing the Sabbath. He just needs to talk with Jesus. And isn't it striking that he comes to Jesus in the night? The traditional interpretation of this is that Nicodemus doesn't want to be seen with Jesus. There's a lot at stake for him. Jesus has already offended many Pharisees by cleaning out the temple and claiming, destroy it, and in three days I will raise it up. No one even knew what that meant, but they didn't much care for it. So it makes sense that Nicodemus doesn't want to be seen with Jesus. And I'm sure that that interpretation is correct. Yet could it also be that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night because... That's always when we're most interested in talking to him. Nighttime is when we are exhausted by trying to be good and when we're conflicted by all that we've done that is not nearly good enough. And it's at nighttime that we ponder such discouraging realizations that being good doesn't really make a difference in whether or not you get cancer, how your children turn out, or even how your own life eventually unfolds. Maybe Sunday mornings are your nighttime with Jesus. Here in this sanctuary, you find sanctuary from the scrutiny of those with whom you work or volunteer with. At the end of the long week and just before the next one, you come to worship to attend to the questions that linger in your soul. Why have these things happened in my life? I'm no saint, but I do try to fulfill my responsibilities, but good isn't good enough to make a dream come true. Jesus what are you doing in my life? Yes, we know about nighttime conversations with Jesus. And it's also striking that Nicodemus begins the conversation by complimenting Jesus. He calls him a rabbi or a teacher who has come from God, and he mentions that he's very impressed by the signs that Jesus has performed. Good people love to compliment each other. Great job on that report. I heard you got a promotion. Congratulations. We'll even compliment Jesus on living a selfless life. It's just another good thing that good people do, but the subtext of a compliment is to affirm the standards by which we live as well. And Jesus doesn't even say thank you. He brushes the compliment aside and says, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above, born again. That word in Greek is anothen. And it always carries the two translations of being born from above and being born again. And our Bible translators typically choose one of these interpretations 
and footnote the other. But their choice reflects a theological disposition. For example, the New International Version, the NIV, a translation preferred by many evangelicals, uses the phrase, born again. The NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, a translation used by most mainline, most mainline Protestant churches, including our own, uses the phrase, born from above. Indeed, it would be possible to see how much of American religion has divided along these choices. Those who emphasize being born again place the stress on experiencing new life. They speak of conversion experiences. Many even have a date when they stopped being a non-Christian and began a new life as a Christian. Some use the born-again experience as a litmus test to discern if others are really Christian. Their churches, organizations, music, revivals, and renewal movements are all focused on inviting people to be converted. And typically, these churches only offer baptism to those who have had such a born-again experience. But by contrast, mainline Protestant churches like the Lutheran Church and then Orthodox and Catholic churches place the stress on being born from above. They prefer to speak of the priority of Christ's work in giving us this new life. And when Jesus later tells Nicodemus that he must be born of water and spirit, they interpret that to refer to the grace of baptism. And so they baptize both adults and babies, but in either case, the emphasis is on the grace of God rather than on our decisions. And for these churches, conversion is seen not as something that happens in a single moment, but as a lifelong response to grace. The 20th century theologian Karl Barth referred to this as a movement of conversion. And most people who are a part of mainline Christianity and who cherish the theology of being born from above are not crazy about the judgment they feel from the born-again litmus test. Most who have had a born-again experience found it so incredibly transforming that they can't understand why everyone doesn't want it. But according to the Greek, to speak of only one of these emphases is to miss Jesus' point. We do need a new life because good is never good enough. And we can only be given this new life from above, from Jesus Christ. The Greek word anothen holds born from above and born again together because they describe both the inextricable relationship between grace and the call for response. One of my friends growing up, his father was a bit of an evangelical preacher who was a part of that born-again wing of the church, that movement. I know some of you are like, Andrew, you grew up in Oregon. What are you saying? Oregon, believe it or not, is not just full of liberals. Indeed, it's the base of the, the home of the Foursquare Gospel movement and some fairly conservative evangelical churches. And this pastor, my friend's father, his ministry was pretty much focused around inviting people to experience conversion. And once a year, he would rent a big tent with three poles, put it up in the church parking lot, and hold a revival. 
And inside were neatly arranged folding chairs, strings of light bulbs, an electric keyboard that had definitely seen better days and sounded better before. There was a volunteer praise band, mostly of college kids from the local campus, and a small volunteer choir, mostly made up of women in floral dresses with a few of their husbands who they'd happened to drag along to join them. The choir never sang Bach, but they were always good for at least 10 verses of Just As I Am or the refrains of Oh the Blood. And I don't know where my friend's father found the preachers for the service. I have no idea if they have attended college or even seminary. But that whole worship service, especially the sermon, was oriented around the invitation at the very end. The preacher or my friend's father would be standing at the end of the aisle while the keyboardist played something. And he would invite people to leave their chairs and to come to where he and Jesus were waiting for them, saying something like, now is the time to step out and give your life to Jesus. The tent was a doorway from our lives to another world. Now, I have to admit that my friend's dad was influential to my ministry, but I've also collected a few degrees since and a theology that has never really been comfortable or at home in revival tents. Some of you probably have gathered that I prefer singing the Kyrie to just as I am. I value the sacramental. And to be honest, I'm not really sure about the long-term value of altar calls. As a pastor who has an affinity for the born-from-above theology, I have to say this, though. Luther, Melanchthon, and even the Pope would agree that even the relatively good have to take their place beside Nicodemus in hearing the invitation to step out and to give their lives to Jesus. The point is not if we have a date for when we became a Christian or if, like Luther, we make the date our baptism as an infant. Perhaps the date that makes the most sense is 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross or... Maybe the date for your life is every day when you repent. Turn from the illusion that you can save yourself by being good enough. The point is that Jesus is dying, literally, to give us a new life, his life. And it doesn't just make us good, it makes us beloved. And that was God's choice. And now we have to make a choice about how we will receive this invitation to new life that only Jesus can provide. We don't know how Nicodemus responded to Jesus' invitation. The story's left open-ended. And perhaps it's left open-ended waiting for our response. Amen.